0: Welcome back to Attorney Time, the legal podcast for the business-minded, hosted by attorneys at the law firm Holly Troxell. Attorney Time brings legal expertise to you. In each episode, Holly Troxell's team of experienced attorneys will cover a broad range of legal topics, from intellectual property and patents to tips for startup companies. In this episode of Attorney Time, we are joined by Holly Troxell attorneys Brad Fraser and Steve Frinsco. Brad Fraser is a partner with Holly Troxell and chairs the firm's internet and intellectual property practice group. In addition to emphasizing and focusing on all facets of internet law, intellectual property law, and information technology law, he also helps clients with related transactional work and litigation. Brad is a published novelist, and he has written extensively for national legal publications and law blogs. He's also a frequent speaker on internet, intellectual property, and computer law topics and is a regular guest lecturer at boise state university on those subjects steve Frinsco is a partner with holly troxel and a transactional attorney in the firm's business and real estate law practice groups his practice focuses on all aspects of business and real estate law including mergers and acquisitions corporate compliance entity formation and governance commercial transactions intellectual property licensing antitrust trust compliance and insurance His mergers and acquisitions experience includes transactions involving both public and private companies, and his current client base covers the gamut, from startups to long-established national companies.
1: Hello and welcome to the Holly Troxel Podcast, where we hope to discuss all things of interest to you in the legal realm, and maybe a few non-legal things as well. My name is Brad Fraser. I'm a partner in the Boise office of Holly Troxel, I'm here with my law partner, Steve Frinsko, who also offices in the Boise office. Steve and I actually sit right next to one another. And that works well for the podcast because I know how Steve works, he knows how I work. And we work a lot together on legal projects, particularly those that affect startups. Steve has a very, very expansive corporate practice and works with Fortune 500, Fortune 100, Fortune 10 companies. But he also helps me with my startup clients. I principally practice intellectual property law. And so I have a lot of clients who call me and ask questions about trademarks. And I have an idea, what do I do next? My first stop is usually Steve's office because he knows how to advise these startup clients with corporate fundamentals. And Steve and I work from the premise that most of these little startups want to become big companies and want to either go get money or maybe have an exit in a few years. And I've learned over the years, Steve is just really, really superior at helping startups get started with those things. And so, Steve, as we talk together this morning or this afternoon or whatever time people are listening about corporate and IP issues. Uh, you and I have discussed some of the main things, some of the principal topics that you see come across your desk as startups are seeking initial legal advice. So, Steve, I mean, tell me in your experience, you know, when I come over to your office and say, hey, Steve, I have a new startup client. What's the first thing that comes to your mind in terms of what a startup should do once they have that initial idea? What, what's the best corporate thing to do? Do they go get a DBA? I, what do they to go form a Delaware corporation? What's your, usually your initial advice?
2: Sure. Um, well, uh, it, it depends is the lawyer answer, but but it, but it really does. Um, although I think fundamentally the, 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 the biggest thing that you and I always tell them is, look, you know, you're the inventor, you have great ideas, and you need to protect yourself and your ideas. So you need to go form some kind of an entity. And, you know, for most people, uh, right out of the blocks, um, we, we, I tend to push them in, not push them, tell them they should just form an LLC, a limited liability company, um, and if they're in Idaho, an Idaho limited liability company, um, because that's where they are. Uh, LLCs give you all the liability shield that you would get with any other kind of entity so that um, you know people who might want to come after you, they're limited to going after the entity and not the founder's personal home or property or whatever. So there's that protection. Um, and, and LLCs are, are, are very simple, relatively simple entities to manage. There's not a lot of statutory formalities you have to um, follow every year to, uh, to maintain the liability shield. Um, so, so that's kind of the biggest thing. Uh, if, if the company is a little more, um, maybe a little more established, um, oh, well, one more thing about LLCs too. They're also primarily contractual agreements among the members. So there's a lot of flexibility in how the members can structure their relationships, um, you know, both in how they're going to run the business, but also in how they're going to split all the money they make, hopefully. Now there's some limits on that from a tax perspective, but but there's a lot of flexibility in, in, that, in that structure. And, and I've been involved with a bunch of different LLCs and startups and, and whatnot. And I would say everyone is different, but but everyone has unique aspects.
1: Thanks, Steve. So it, it sounds like from your comment that there are two principal kinds of entities that a startup could form, an LLC, limited liability company, and a corporation. It sounds like you're recommending, in most cases, an LLC. Are there times where you recommend the formation of a corporation right out of the blocks?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, I think I would do that if um, in, in short order, and I don't know if a short order is six months, a year, two years, whatever it is, probably within a year, um, the, the, the company wanted to go raise um, uh, institutional money or venture capital money or some sort of seed money. Um, uh, or if the founders say, look, I have a team of people and I want to reward them for their service, um, by granting them a share of the company in equity, in, in those cases, I would I would uh, say, okay, well, a corporation is is generally a better structure for for doing that for either one of those things. Um, um, especially in the employee equity side, it makes it you can do it with an LLC, but it's a lot more complicated. And um, for venture money, they're always I shouldn't say always. More often than not, they're going to want a corporate corporation rather than an LLC structure. Um,
1: you know, we'll come back, Steve, to talk more about money because that's always a favorite topic of startups right. and, their, and their CEOs. Yeah. But um, what is the best state? This is a leading question. What is the yeah. best state to form your entity in, Steve? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know,
2: best is a relative term. Um, and you and I have had this discussion, and, and, and I, think, I think Idaho is a great state to form your entity in, um, but a lot of, in fact, I'm dealing with this, not dealing with, I'm helping a client through this process right now, um, an Idaho entity that is in the middle of uh, uh, its first real money fundraising round, and, and part of the, the deal terms were that this company, Idaho company, needed to convert to be a Delaware corporation um, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. The, the nice thing about Delaware, aside from the fact that it's, you know, all the way across the country, but Delaware has a really well-developed body of, of corporate and, and entity law. So nothing's ever certain when you're getting into court, but there's a lot of, a lot more certainty about, um, how things will be interpreted and how things are done. And so, um, uh, the, the preference seems to be that I've seen for that kind of money is, is a Delaware corporation. That being said, Idaho corporate law and Delaware corporate law, they're different, but they're not um, so different that I think it makes a huge difference from an internal corporate governance perspective. And, and if you're going to operate a business and you're never probably going to raise money, I would just do an Idaho corporation if, if, you know, part of that simply I'm in Idaho and I like to have people be, be founded here, but there's, you know, but, but, but there is, you know, some simplicity in that too. It's you, if you're in Idaho doing business in Idaho, even if you're reaching across the country, you only have one set of corporate filings you have to make every year, typically. Whereas if you're a Delaware corporation, but you're headquartered in Idaho, you have to also do some filings in the state of Idaho as well. So it's not not very burdensome, but it's just, you know, when you're a startup and you're juggling how many balls or spinning how many plates, it's just one more plate to spin or ball to juggle. And if you can take something off your plate, I think that's always a good idea.
1: Yeah, I think that's right, Steve. And as you know, many times you and I will get a new client and they'll say something like this. Oh no, I've already formed my LLC Mm -hmm. or I've already formed my corporation. Or I've did a DBA. In your experience, Steve, when when people come in and they've already done some efforts, typically on their own, to form an entity, what kind of mistakes do you see them making?
2: Well, um, honestly, the biggest one, Brad, and, and this is something you and I have have helped a lot of clients with, is is they'll form the company, the entity, but they don't realize that they need to take an additional step to transfer all of their good ideas and their IP or, or some portion of them into that entity to um, uh, you know, give, give them the protection for that IP and for themselves, but also to, to help them monetize the value of those ideas and, and you know, really make sure the company has everything it needs to do to, to develop those ideas in the future.
1: You know, we've had this discussion and you know how strongly I feel about that topic, IP ownership. And so I would agree with you that many times when we see a startup client come in the door and they've already done some preliminary work, one of the first questions I'll ask as an intellectual property lawyer is, prove to me that the entity you formed, the Nevada LLC, the Delaware C Corp, the Florida S Corp, whatever you've got, prove to me that it owns the intellectual property supporting your venture. And many times that is met with a blank stare because they don't (laughs) understand those concepts. So I I would agree with you that that is a a very common mistake that I see as well. Mm -hmm. So imagine, Steve, now that our little startup client has been in business for a year and a half, two years, and they come to you and they say, all right, Steve, it's time to raise money. In your experience, what type of entity structure is most attractive? To a venture a capitalist, an angel, an investor, a bank, a loan—what typically is the is the most attractive? Mm-hmm.
2: Um, well, banks don't really care uh, for what what structure you have. Um, I, I suppose that's not entirely true. They want to make sure it's properly formed and valid, existing, and that kind of stuff. Um, and um, banks really—what banks do tend to care about is. Um, securing their 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 loan and getting making sure they get repaid so uh if the entity doesn't have a lot of assets more than likely the the owners whether they're shareholders uh uh of a closely held corporation or members of an llc uh are going to be asked for personal guarantees of that debt um which you know that is a very common way that banks and other lenders get around that liability shield and um Um, hold the members or the the shareholders personally liable. And there's nothing wrong with that. It happens all the time. Um, You know, it's kind of like the golden rule and and the banks have the gold, so they make the rules. Um, But just be aware of that. Uh, But but from an entity perspective, I don't think the banks really care. Um, From a venture capital or seed funding, angel round funding, um, like I mentioned earlier, more than likely they're going to want well, more than likely, they're going to want a corporate corporation structure. Um, I'm hesitating because I've definitely done some deals and had clients who have taken at least seed money uh, in an LLC structure. Uh, and it's it's fine. And the, and the, the investors don't really care um, as long as they have the proper protections in place.
1: So my takeaway from that comment might be that there's no particular rush to run off and form a Delaware C-Corp.
2: No. And in fact, um That reminds me of one thing I should have mentioned, Brad. I I agree. There is no rush. Um, And if you're just getting started and you don't think you're going to need to raise money right away, um, I would definitely encourage that there is one reason that Idaho, I think, is a better place than Delaware. And that is that Idaho, uh, you pay a $100 filing fee when you form the corporation, when you incorporate. And and that's it. You have to make an annual um, sort of a notice filing every year, but there's no charge for that. Delaware uh, imposes a franchise tax every year, and it's a somewhat complicated formula based on either number of shares authorized in the corporation or um, assets or or whatnot. Um, And and, and the way the formula works, though, if if you kind of work it out and you have a lot of shares, I think the cap is something like $200,000 a year. Um, you know, so for a, a Fortune 50 or Fortune 100 publicly traded company, that's not a big deal. But for a startup, that could be, I don't know, twice your entire revenue, more than that even. So I think that's a big a big driver when I talk to people about where they're going to incorporate. It, you know, it's certainly not always going to, not ever likely going to be $200,000, but just it's something I think that sometimes people get surprised by, uh, those franchise taxes in Delaware.
1: There is a lot of sort of common knowledge, there is a, 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 a layman's sense or a, a common understanding when you have a startup that you have to rush out and form a Delaware C-Corp because the first thing you have to do when you have a startup is go raise money. Right. And you and I have talked a lot about that and how many times that's a misconception. Many times it's better to grow organically and bootstrap yes. And, and avoid the dilution that comes with a seed round or a VC round and, and try to grow organically. That much better positions you for an exit in, in my experience and probably in your experience as well. But, you know, I had a call the other day, Steve, from a client who said he wanted to form uh, an, an LLC and he wanted to issue founders stock as a way of raising money. And then I have other clients who call and say, I need to hire someone to write software I want to give them equity in exchange for their services. And you hear these stories as well. Sure. So let's talk just a little bit more about money, Steve. What are the assuming that we have grown organically all that we can, Mm -hmm. as you and I advocate, and we Mm -hmm. now need to, as they say, scale? And we really do need money. Mm -hmm. Maybe at a high level, you could walk our listeners through the the main ways a startup is going to raise money at the appropriate time bank loan, angel, venture. We've talked about those, but what are they?
2: Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, bank loan is uh, kind of the easy one. Um, it's tra- traditional, you go to a bank and you ask the bank to lend you some money to fund your, um, your, uh, your venture. And, and that's, in some ways, I think that's a very good way to do it if, if you can afford to do it or if the structure works because um, you yes, you have a debt to the bank and it's $100,000 or a $1 million dollars or whatever the debt is, But you still, you as the founder, assuming you're the sole founder, you still have 100% of the equity in the company. So you pay back the loan and the business, um, let's just say you borrowed a million dollars to take your business to the next level. And using that million dollars, you can leverage it to grow the business to say, I don't know, $30 million in revenue. Well, that's all yours. And obviously you don't get all that $30 million, but you haven't sold a part of your company to, to, to get that growth. Um, so a bank loan, I think, is, is very attractive in that regard. The downside is, um, and I've actually had clients run into this, where there's are a startup. Frankly, they had a great idea um, and they needed, I think it was about a half million dollars and um, they, they could have borrowed the money, but they were at a point where they didn't want to um, put up their houses as collateral, you know, all this kind of stuff. So the, the bank loan didn't really make sense at that point. And that's what the bank was requiring. And, and I don't think the bank was out of line. I mean, the, the company was very early stage. It had a great idea, some good tech potential technology, but had nothing really, it had these ideas, which you know, banks want some security about getting paid back and they can't collect on air or, or, or ideas, I guess. Um, so that's one way. And I, and I actually, I tend to encourage people to explore that route and exhaust that route as much as they can. Um, before they start to go out to the the financing or the, the sorry, the, the venture capital market um, for, for, for that reason alone is you keep, you keep all the equity uh, in the company. Um, but the venture capital or the seed or the angel, they're all sort of um, variations on a theme. And, and what they are is um, you have people who have pools of money that want to invest it in your company in exchange for some some share of, of the company's equity, so the stock or the or the LLC membership interest. Um, and that is a is a you know is a very viable way to to grow the business um, and, and generate or, or, or gain that capital to take it from. You know, maybe you need capital to not so much turn the idea into a commercial product, but you've like you said, you've grown it to a level and you could probably continue to have organic incremental growth, but if you took a million dollars or whatever it is in, in, in um, <clears throat> uh, venture money, you could grow it to, I don't know, three or four or five times what it is today, maybe in a year versus the three or four years it would take you to do it organically.
1: That's a great description, Steve. Thanks. So yeah. tell, our, tell our listeners, what what, in your experience, what does the perfect investment target look like? Imagine that you are hired to do due diligence on a company, an angel or a VC or an equity fund, or someone has hired Steve Frinsco to do, to do due diligence on a target for, for an investment, a million dollar round of some kind. I know what I look for as an IP lawyer, and we can talk about that, but yeah. what do you look for in terms of best structure, best structure, uh, best formation. Tell me what you think a, uh, a VC or an angel is going to look for when you're doing due diligence on them for an investment.
2: Sure. Um, I think one of the, I mean, it, it depends a little bit on the industry, but but I, but I think one of the things that people look for is um, s- revenue stream and, 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 and you know a good revenue stream and a supportable revenue stream. Uh, although I don't know that that's always a requirement, um, but but it certainly helps. I mean, if you're already making money, um, that that's a good sign for the investor because they know there's a um, a better chance that they'll get get a return on their money. Uh, but I, but I think another thing too, and probably you tell me, but I would I would almost say that uh, this is equally if not more important than revenue. But is is the team uh, of people or or the founder or whoever's involved? That, that, are, that are going to be operating the business after the investment. Um, in fact, I had a, I'm working on, a, I mentioned the deal I'm working on right now with the Series A round. And I happened to be talking to one of the earlier investors about why, why he invested in the company. And he said, Look, I invested because this person in this particular role is one of the best people I've ever seen. And this is a guy that had really deep experience in that particular field. Uh, so, so that to him was critically important uh, because this particular person was um, probably one of the key players in developing the company's company's uh, uh, technology. Mm-hmm. So that I think people probably people are, are are even more important than revenues, but 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 those two things are probably the biggest things that I think investors look for, uh, at least at a initial level.
1: That's very interesting. Talk. Let's talk a little bit more about some of the organizational issues that a startup client will confront. In my experience, when we have a new startup client and they say, well I've already formed my LLC, uh-huh. because you and I are lawyers, we always think that things are going to end in divorce because <laughs> always, I mean things always end badly because we're lawyers and right. that's just the way life is. things right. always end badly. So we always assume that this LLC is going to split up or there's going to be an ugly divorce. Mm -hmm. So another thing, tell me what your thoughts are, Steve, on the importance of an LLC operating agreement. What is that? And what does that do when when there's that eventual divorce? Mm
2: -hmm. Well, the the operating agreement is, is, I mentioned, I think, earlier that that LLCs are... Creatures of contract or, or really contractual relationships for the most part. And, and the LL, the operating agreement is the, the contract among the members um, that, that sets out the terms of their relationship. Um, so uh, money's a big one. How are we going to split up the money? Um, uh, and that's, that's actually in some ways the easiest thing in, in a lot of cases, because it's, it's typically split. Um, you know, if you have, Fifty-one percent, and I have forty-nine percent. That's how we split the money. You get fifty-one, and I get forty-nine. And, and by the way, that—I mean—everybody thinks in terms of profits, and we're going to make all this money. But but that also applies to losses. So um, in an LLC, they're they shared. Everything's shared equally like that. Um, sometimes you see some other structures where I, I, I've done some structures for clients where, um, you know, they they were trying to get some some investors in and make them comfortable. And we we did a, a deal where the investors um, got a pri- pri- priority return of their money. So so basically, they got a bigger chunk. So if they had, so just say the split was 50-50 uh, between the founder and the investor, the, the deal was that the investor would get something like 80% of profits until um you know, his initial investment was paid back and then it would go back to a 50-50 split. Um, so there's things like that. The other thing you, you see a lot is is describing how, how we're gonna get into it. You know, how are we gonna add new members? What what does it take? Um, you, you know, typically these are closely held companies. So uh, it's not like buying shares on the New York Stock Exchange. You really don't care who the other shareholders are uh, because you never probably ever see them. Uh, here you're dealing with these people every day, and and so you want to have some boundaries and some limits on who can come in and and, and how, and and if effectively in some ways it's it's a veto right for, um, no not always a veto right but something close to a veto right uh, for the, the remaining person, uh, and then there's things on what can you do to transfer your shares or your your interests who 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 can how do you transfer them what what are the restrictions. Um, Oftentimes you see a a right for the other member or the company to buy those, those interests before they get sold on the, on the sort of the open market. Um, Other things have to do with uh, how are we going to run the business? Who's going to make the decisions for the company on a day-to-day basis? And, And oftentimes it gets a little bit academic when you only have one person, but oftentimes there's a, there's a manager who's tasked with running the day-to-day operations of the company and making those decisions about, you know, are we going to have Pepsi or Coke in the soda machine, or are we going to have, you know, Starbucks or Pete's in the coffee machine, Um, (laughs) those kinds of things. And, and really dealing with the business running issues. And oftentimes Mm -hmm. you'll see the members reserve some power to vote on big things. Like for example, um, are we going to license our patent to somebody else to manufacture for us? Are we going to sell mm-hmm. the company? Are we going to do these kinds of things? Right. So there's a lot of different things you can do. And, that, and that's the great thing about an LLC is with very, very few exceptions there, there's not many things that are, that you can't, you know, negotiate.
1: Well, what happens if you don't have an operating agreement? How is, how is the divorce governed, Steve, if the LLC has been around for a few years and they sure. don't have an operating agreement, what happens here in Idaho?
2: Well, the the you do actually you do have an operating agreement, um, and that's that's created for you by the Idaho LLC Act. Um, So, but but which is fine, and and in a lot of cases it works well. um, But some of the terms in the LLC Act don't necessarily track with um, with with what the members might think. or might, might, how they might view their relationship should be, and and really actually getting out of it um, isn't isn't that big of a deal. Uh, although um, the the default is is a member is not allowed to withdraw unilaterally from an LLC. So so if if the other member or members don't agree and you don't have an operating agreement that defines how that that can happen, you're in that you're in the business until. Um, until uh, everybody agrees to you, for you to get out um and i'm actually just rethinking that uh, if, if i think i'm correct about that but but anyway so there's that uh, other things you might see um the default in in the llc act is that voting is uh, a head count so one head one vote um which if you own say 75 percent of the membership interest because you put up 75 percent of the money you might not want to have equal voting rights with someone who only put up 25% of the money. You might want to be able to vote your entire 75%.
1: Right.
2: Um, right. That's, that, to me, that's the biggest, that is one of the biggest um, things that I, I think people, that we, we advise people to change uh, the, sort of from the default, default provisions in the code. So in that case, maybe you could get out if you voted 75%.
1: So it sounds like it might be better in most cases to have an actual negotiated written operating agreement for your LLC as opposed to relying on the default provisions. Absolutely, the code, yeah. yeah. So and, and
2: actually, just to to follow that up, if you're gonna if you're going to go to a bank and get a bank account, or you're going to um, you're going to raise money from an outside investor, mm-hmm. you're going to have to have one. And, and and I don't know that they would necessarily say pass because you haven't written gotten a written operating agreement before they invest. But I guarantee you before they write a check, you will have negotiated an operating agreement with those investors.
1: So let's assume I have a startup client who has a new idea for an app for an iPhone or the Android device. Mm -hmm. As you know, that's extraordinarily popular now probably I don't know half of my new incoming phone calls are from inventors who have an idea for an app just an app that they mm-hmm. want to put onto the iPhone or the Android device. And invariably I'll get the question as do you, but I don't have any money to hire a software developer. I want to give the software developer equity in exchange mm-hmm. for their services. Mm-hmm. I know what I tell my client on those facts. I say, well, that's fine. But anybody that you work with to develop the app has to sign two agreements, a non-disclosure agreement and an IP assignment The non disclosure agreement, as you know, protects the trade secret value of the idea because you don't yet have an issued patent. The IP assignment makes sure that the LLC that you have formed or will form owns that intellectual property so that when during due diligence you are asked, do you own the IP, you can affirmatively say yes. So, you know, Brad's view is that every one of those deals needs two things an NDA and an IP assignment. But from your perspective, Steve, as a corporate lawyer, how do you structure that deal where I want to give equity to a, an 18 year old code developer to write code for my app?
2: Um, that's an interesting question. Um, and, and, you know, there's a lot of answers to it. I, I think my, my first reaction to be, to be perfectly blunt is why, why, why do you want to do that? And, um, and, you know, and, and kind of talk through, I, I do, I, and I probably, well, you do this too, I'm sure, is, is talk through the numbers a little bit with, with the, the client and say, look, I don't know, what are you going to pay this person ultimately? $5,000? I, I don't know what the, what the, what the numbers are, but if, let's just say it's $5,000. Um, okay, that works, but you don't have any cash. So we're going to do it with equity. How much of your company are you willing to give away for $5,000? Um, and, and not just today. I think people need to think about, you know, today, $5,000, okay, 5%, big deal, whatever, or, or whatever the numbers are. But but you kind of multiply that out down the road, and, and as the company continues to grow in value, as you hope it will, well, 5% for $5,000 when the company's worth $50 million on an exit, uh, you know, maybe that's worth it. I don't know, but just that's the. I think the thing that people people don't always think about is is that longer term, um, you know, it's sort of robbing Peter to pay Paul uh, today to get the. And, and I get it. Look, I mean, you you want to get the idea out there because if you don't, there's no company. But I think those are things that people need to think about. And, and there's no again, there's no there's nothing wrong with doing it this way. Um, it's just that I think people sometimes forget about those numbers. Um, and forget to think a little bit longer term. Um, so that's that's the one thing that I think about. The other thing is is you can certainly do it, but when you start issuing in any way, whether it's you know for in exchange for services or for uh, to raise money, you run into the the securities. There's a bunch of securities laws that that uh, govern what you can do with um, uh, equity, and you know, you probably heard this. We, you and I have talked about this. I think the, the the story. I have an orange grove to sell you in Florida, right? Or shares in an orange grove in Florida, and the, uh, to the to the you know un, unknowing northern person who who isn't in Florida, who's in New York, um, and that's actually based in a case from I think about the '50s, where uh, the securities fraud case and and the, and the the person, his name was Howie, uh, was charged with securities fraud for selling shares in an orange grove in Florida to people up north. And that turned out to be a, a vacant dirt lot <laughs> with oranges on it. Um, so, so the issue is is making sure that people understand what they're buying into. And because of the, 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 these unscrupulous people um, selling shares of dirt parking lots posing as orange groves, there's a lot of regulation around what you can do to issue equity and sell equity in your company. Um, Certainly legal, it's allowed, people do it all the time, but there is a process you have to do. And and so it's going to be more complicated. And um, one of the biggest things with equity is it's very difficult if the contractor, the developer is a company. Um, it, it, it's, it's a lot harder to issue equity to that person in exchange for, um, mm-hmm. services or that company in exchange for services rendered.
1: You can do you know, it. My takeaway so- from that, Steve, then is that if you are a startup and you have an idea and you need an app and that sentence contemplates 90% of the new calls I get every week, mm-hmm. I'm an, I have an idea and I want to build an app. Yep. People tend to think, as you know, that well, equities is cheap, free money. I don't have to go out of pocket. I'll just give them five percent of my company. But you make sure. excellent points, and I would encourage our listeners to ask that question: Why, yeah. if it's going to cost ten thousand dollars to develop your app, come up with ten grand and pay the person and be done?
2: Absolutely. And
1: as opposed to having that person own five percent of your company, and then you know, twenty years from now, it's a ten million dollar payday. Good for yeah. the developer but maybe bad for yeah. you and maybe bad for your investors down the road. So I totally agree to think about paying for things organically as opposed to using equity as free and cheap money. So, you know, and it's not
2: free and cheap, Brad. I mean, it's, it's the most expensive money you'll ever spend.
1: Really. Good point. That's a good point. And so the misconception is, and I fall fall prey to it is that it's free, cheap money, but it's not, I mean, you've got the regulatory environment, you've got the downstream consequences of giving away a portion of your company dilution and all those other issues. So, you know, as we're, Go ahead. Two
2: is, is you just have another partner or I'm using that term very, very loosely, but another person you have to deal with because you've just added another equity owner of your company. Um, right. And either the operating agreement or, or the statute or whatever gives that person certain rights that, you know, and maybe in some cases you can't do what you want to do because that person doesn't agree.
1: It's a good point, Steve. And so now as we're sort of wrapping up our podcast here today, let me, let me just give our listeners sort of my last two cents. Please. My best advice that I give to startup clients. And then, Steve, I'll ask you to maybe give your two-minute summary of your best advice to startup clients. My best advice to all my startup clients is what I said earlier. When you have an idea, you need to protect your idea because that's the thing that gives your company value until you have $10 million in revenue and then you have revenue. And so my advice, and this is the way I phrase it, Steve, I say to every new startup with an idea, I say everyone, including you, the CEO, everyone who creatively touches your idea, whatever that means to you, whoever creatively touches it has to sign two contracts, a non-disclosure agreement and an IP assignment. There it is. And if if they do those two things religiously, just like they brush their teeth every once a week or however often they brush their teeth, they will be be well positioned. If they have everyone, every human being who creatively or company who creatively touches their idea, signs two documents: an NDA and an IP assignment. If they do nothing more than that, then when they finally come to see you and me, uh, they're probably going to not be in bad shape. So now, Steve, what are your what's your two minute summary of best advice to a startup client?
2: I, I mean, I, I would first, hundred percent. Second, what you just said, I think that's critical because that is your your, you know, that is the foundation for all the revenue you're going to generate. Um, and I guess my advice would be, um, well, we've talked about getting you know, forming an entity, and I think that's important. But I don't know that I would, um, I would think about it, but I wouldn't spend it any more time than necessary on it. And I would also tell people to focus on developing the business and developing the idea and, and, you know, hopefully starting to generate revenue, but getting that idea to a, a, a point where they can monetize it and, and, and start generating the revenue and, and then focus on generating the revenue and continuing to build, build the business. Um, I actually have another client recently who I think had a really interesting idea um, and and could have could have done good things and had some really good traction. And I, and I think kind of lost sight of. The underlying core core business or, or core um, idea and got distracted with maybe fundraising and various other things to 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 to. Um, the, the, where they were focused on and and didn't quite spend as much focus on really building out that underlying idea and and making it into a robust um, stable solid product that um, they could use as a platform to, to really exponentially grow the business and, and then actually the company's now um, dissolved right and so so I think I think that's the biggest thing is is not is not getting so distracted with you know, all these bright, shiny objects of raising money or, or, you know, Twitter or LinkedIn or Facebook or Instagram or whatever. I mean, those are important. And, you you know, you and I have had conversations about um, ways to generate brand value by using those strategically. But I I think you got to remember to focus on, you know, I never really played football, but it's an easy example that everybody understands the blocking and the tackling.
1: Right, right. Well, those are great points, Steve. Thanks for that great summary. Well, we would invite our listeners, if any of our conversation today has generated any questions, please reach out to Steve Frinsko, my law partner who practices corporate law. My name is Brad Fraser. We'd be happy to follow up with you on any questions generated by our podcast today. So on behalf of the wise and eminently talented Steve Frinsco, the other lawyers at Holly Troxell, and me, Brad Fraser, thanks so much for listening. Thanks, everybody, and thanks, Brad.
0: Thank you for tuning into this episode of Attorney Time. We will be back next month with another episode from Holly Troxell's team of experienced attorneys. And join us in two weeks for the start of Phil Mackay's series on patent law.